Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. You shall either be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, or while moldering in the grave, you shall hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're listening to a sermon from Samuel Davies. It was preached sometime in the 1750s. Troy, how's it going? Joel, it's been a very busy week. Um, hopefully, you are doing as good as I am. Joel, we I'm have done great. an episode on Samuel Davies before, but it has been uh, it's been a while. If you listen to that episode, if you've listened to that episode, that would probably mean you are either really dedicated to the catalog, which we have people who have messaged us who said, "Hey, I've listened to every single episode of Revive Thoughts," which is awesome, or. You have been an early listener uh, who've been with us for years as well. But in either way, to listen to our Samuel Davies means you've been around for a while. But Davies is considered this really amazing preacher. Many people, I, a lot of people have not heard of him. And yet he comes highly recommended by some of the best. Martin Lloyd-Jones says he was the best preacher that ever came out of America. And in fact, before the American Civil War, he was the most widely read sermon uh, preacher. He was like the Charles Spurgeon where everyone was reading his sermons in both America and Britain. And it was only during the American Civil War when his church got burnt down that he wasn't no longer preaching at, but the church where he had preached that had all of his stuff basically lost it in the publishing. All that stuff went away that he became, he kind of got forgotten afterwards. Yeah, he was long dead when the Civil War came about because he didn't live a long life. He only lived to the age of 37 so a, a lot happened in his life, but it's all crammed down into these 37 years of life. Born in 1723 in the Delaware Colony. This is this is pre-America, so this is not the state of Delaware. It's the Delaware Colony at this point. Uh, born and raised, so this is kind of the age of the Great Awakening, right? His parents were very faithful, and they named him Samuel because they wanted their son to be great in the faith, you know, after Samuel in the Bible. And Davies was a passionate man, but... Uh, his life originally didn't look like it would be anything special. He went to school, uh, he got a license to preach, and it turned out he had a real passion for preaching, and he actually became the first non-Anglican preacher in Virginia. Because he was the first, he ended up carrying like a lot of church duties in that early colony of Virginia. Um, he would end up kind of basically being the main guy for five different counties, riding on horseback from place to place, preaching as an evangelist. He was very successful. Many people came to Christ and were, you know, the the Great Awakening hadn't really hit Virginia yet, and he was a big part of kind of bringing it in to Virginia. Uh, But this also wore him out, led him to a bad place of health, which we see a lot with these guys who work really hard, do these great ministries, and then they wear themselves out doing so. His wife, in the same time, also, she passed away. He had married her, but about a year later, she died during a miscarriage. And then, so it's a really hard time for him. He genuinely... 
at the time, you know, if you read his journals and stuff, he thought he was going to die. And so he kind of basically got this mindset, I'm not going to survive this disease I have. My wife is already gone. You know, my child is already gone. So instead of, you know, he doesn't despair. He doesn't give up. He doesn't go, what's the point? He's not depressed. He just goes, since I'm going to die soon, let me leave it all on the table. Let me preach like every sermon's my last because I, I do think it probably will be. And so he threw himself passionately into preaching and trying to make sure that he has done everything he could, you know, setting his affairs in order and giving his last hurrah, kind of that, what would you do if you thought you were going to die soon? That's how he's living, but he doesn't die. And he actually continues to live for, you know, a little bit, a little bit longer at least. Uh, and so he, but he keeps that passion of every sermon could be my last for the rest of his life. He does marry another woman not too long afterwards, and he will have some children uh, with her. Yeah, we sometimes uh, get a glimpse into the lives of, of these people's spouses when we do these historical overviews, but it's not too often that we learn much about the children of these men, and uh, Samuel Davis is kind of an exception to that because we get to see him uh, kind of excel as a dad. Like, from from all accounts, he seems to be a great father. He educated uh, his kids himself, homeschooled. He made sure that the, in quotes, what he called strangers did not corrupt them. Uh, He wrote a poem for his son, And these are the last uh, few lines of this here. Now you were born into an anxious state of dubious trial for your future fate. Now you are listed in a war of life, the prize immense, and oh, severe the strife. Maker of souls avert so dire a doom, or snatch her back to native nothing's gloom. Which, you know, minus the, the old king's English, it, it's not, it, it sounds, it, it's very similar to what I feel like a, the sentiment of a lot of parents have in today's day and age even. That's actually why I liked it so much is because I was like, isn't that all of us were like, hey, right. we love our children. Um, he even says, oh, miniature man of me, I think in the beginning of the poem. But then it's like, but isn't the whole goal of our child raising to be about keeping them from, you know, losing the war of life? And I, I really liked it. That's what other people said too. I also find it interesting that like uh, I feel like a lot of a lot of people that are very good at ministry and very passionate about ministry, as as much as it pains us to see it and to say it, like a lot of the times they're not great family people. Like like the that that ministry preoccupies all of their life and they're obsessed with with you know that theology and teaching and stuff like that. It's very hard to be a very good minister and a very good father and husband at the same time and as much as it's sad to see we do see that a lot and I see that a lot even in today's day and age where it it seems like one is being sacrificed over the other and you know there's it takes a lot of spiritual guidance and a lot of spiritual warfare going on there for someone to be a good minister and a good family uh, father and husband and it seems like it seems like he did a pretty good job at it. Yeah, Davies definitely would be considered a good dad. And a lot of his letters, he would write to people. He would mention, like, hey, pray for me and as I'm raising these kids. And he would say, of course, I'm praying for your kids, too. And that sounds like a small thing. But, I mean, even how often are you messaging your friends or people you know? You know, if people are going through your chat messages 100 years from now. Are they going to see that back and forth where you're like, hey, I'm praying for your kids. Be praying for mine. Maybe. But in his life, they did see that. And that was something I thought was very 
uh, unique. I spent a lot of time researching these guys. Lots of these people have great children. Uh, Spurgeon had great children that followed the Lord. Jonathan Edwards' daughter seems to have followed the Lord before she died. And a lot of them did. But we can see that Davies really put a lot of his heart and soul into raising his kids and making them a central part of his ministry to the point, again, like he was homeschooling them at a time when, you know, he was a very, very busy pastor. You could see him going, hey, I don't have that time to do that. But he made that time, uh, even though it would be difficult for him. Now, Davies had a profound impact on the colonies uh, beyond just his children, beyond just being the first big evangelist in Virginia to kind of bring the Great Awakening there. He was really big on articulating and speaking about the ideas of freedom, liberty, and many of the things that would shape kind of America's future, even though he died about, uh, give or take, 15 years before the Civil, or sorry, the Civil, the Revolutionary War. His ideas, the things that he was promoting, what he was writing in his sermons were all these ideas of God has given us freedom, God has given us this gift, let us use it well. And one of the people who came to his church as a kid, uh, young Patrick Henry, famously would travel to his church uh, on, a, on a wagon, and then he would tell people who didn't get to go to church everything he heard from the sermons. His job was to kind of share the sermon that he heard that day with everyone and tell them what he had heard and what he did. So he had to kind of copy the mimic the actions to the people who couldn't be there. I mean, they can't just go watch a YouTube video or listen to the podcast. They had to have somebody tell it to them. And so Patrick Henry's job as a kid was to listen to the sermons, try to memorize as much of it as possible, and share that with others. Patrick Henry, who, if you do not know, is famous for the lines, give me liberty or give me death, was a huge part of the American Revolution. But he was not an educated person. In fact, many people believe he was illiterate. But despite that, despite never getting a formal education, he didn't go to college, he was a very eloquent speaker, a very good speaker. You know, he was able to give great speeches and give these dramatic lines like, give me liberty. And then he like, he grabbed his heart and said, or give me death, you know, capturing all these people's attentions. He was this great motivator for the American Revolution. But if you ask Patrick Henry, who was the greatest speaker you ever saw? I mean, he saw Benjamin Franklin. He saw George Washington. He saw all these people give speeches. Yeah, Patrick Henry said they were all good, but I learned everything I know about speech making from Samuel Davies. Now, Davies lived in the South, and unlike many Southerners, he had a very high opinion of slaves. He promoted literacy, education, and many campaigns to see them come to know Christ. Some called him the evangelist to the slaves. Although he himself did not believe that slavery needed to end, this is the mid-1700s. Our famous abolitionists were not yet on the scene, but Davies was very harshly against slave owners. He believed uh, too many of them were cruel and mean and wrote about their behavior a lot. He would often address any slave in the audience of his church and tell them that nothing made him happier than having them come to his church and find salvation. He was even one of the few churches that allowed black congregants to preach in the church, write hymns, teach, uh, and live out as spiritual equals. In his quest to educate all, he uh, they had lots of books and materials, Bibles, shipped in from London as educational material uh, to teach everyone how to read. And uh, by the time he died, there were over a thousand African Americans involved in ministry there. Uh, and this is in Virginia, in the South. So it was very unique. After the unexpected death of Jonathan Edwards, only about six weeks into his time at Princeton as the college head, if you have listened to our episodes on Jonathan Edwards, you know that his tenure as the head of uh, Princeton was very, very short. Uh, they asked Samuel Davies to come and be his replacement. One of the reasons Princeton said they wanted him 
was because he had this really great heart for even the poorest of the poor, the people, you know, the slaves, the people that everyone else ignored. Samuel Davies was preaching to them with gusto and they saw the great effect of the ministry he had there. And that was something they wanted the people who went to Princeton, who got educated to have that same kind of heart. But being at Princeton was completely different. I mean, he went from teaching the people that no one cared about, the lowest of the lows, you know, the societal lower caste, whatever, to the, the richest of the rich, the elites, the people that were going to Princeton, the ones that would be the preachers, the businessmen, and the leaders. And yet he kept that same passion and that same heart. And he passionately, you know, went after the people and said, like, you are, you know, basically you're the rich people. Don't forget these people on the bottom. Don't treat them poorly, but say, uh, you know, continue to be what you're supposed to be. And Davies is a really humble guy, by the way. When they invited him to be the head of the Princeton College, he actually said, I don't think I'm the good, good enough guy for the job. He put forward another guy, Samuel Finley. He's like, he's a great evangelist. I think you really want this guy. He's better than me. But they were like, no, we want you, Samuel Davies. Uh, he was there only for two years before he himself passed away at the age of 37, pretty unexpectedly. In fact, his last sermon he preached, if this is, uh, I think it was his last one, was a New Year's sermon where he quoted from Jeremiah uh, and talked about how he didn't know if he would even survive to the end of the year. You know, death comes for us all. We might, you know, live every moment like it's your last because it really might be. And within a month of preaching that sermon, probably his last sermon, he did die. So, I mean, that imagine that image of your, you know, your head of the college or whatever saying you have to live really like you might die. This could be your last sermon. And then he dies. That was his last sermon. You go, oh, wow. Like, okay, that's going to stick with you for a long time. That must have been pretty... Uh, terrified. He was quite well loved, and when he died, it was quite sad. And again, for many, many years, for about a hundred years after his death, his sermons were the most popular sermons in the entire world. Uh, came out, coming out of America, everyone was reading them, and it was only when they got burnt down during the Civil War did he kind of get thrown into the forgotten category of history. Now you get the opportunity to listen to his sermon, The Resurrection of Damnation. This sermon was very direct and to the point, like all of Davy's sermons. And we have, uh, this guy is a gentleman uh, who reads these sermons, who reads a lot of sermons uh, himself. You can find, we'll talk a little bit more about him on the end of the episode, but he enjoys putting a little bit of music into his sermons. Very different for us at Revive Thoughts to have a little bit of kind of music. So we hope you enjoy that. It's different. Um, maybe, hopefully it doesn't, you don't find it too distracting, but this, his sermons are a little bit different. He reads many sermons like we do at Revive Thoughts. And so we wanted to use this great sermon by him from Samuel Davies. Do not be amazed at this, because the time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. John 5 verses 28 and 29. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come. You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. See, a glorious multitude, which none can number, openly quitted, pronounced blessed, and welcomed into the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Now they enter upon a state that deserves the name of life. 
They are all vital, all active, all glorious, all happy. They shine brighter than the stars in the skies, like the sun forever and ever. All their faculties overflow with happiness. They mingle with the glorious company of angels. They behold that unseen Savior whom they loved. They dwell in eternal intimacy with the Infinite Father. They are employed with ever new and growing delight in the exalted services of the heavenly sanctuary. They shall never more fear nor feel the least touch of sorrow, pain, or any kind of misery, but shall be as happy as their glorified natures can admit through an infinite duration. What a glorious new creation is here! What indescribable creatures who were originally formed from the dust! Shall any of us join in this happy company? Oh, shall any of us feeble, dying, sinful creatures share in their glory and happiness? This is a most important inquiry. The prospect would be delightful if charity could hope that this will be the happy end of all people. But alas, multitudes shall come forth from their graves not to the resurrection of life, but to the resurrection of damnation. What tears in these words! If audacious sinners in our world make light of it, their comrades already in the infernal fires, who feel its tremendous import, are not so hardy, but tremble, groan, and can trifle with it no more. Let us realize the miserable doom of this class of mankind. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. See them bursting into life from their subterranean dungeons. Horror throbs through every vein and glares wildly and furiously in their eyes. Every joint trembles and every countenance looks downcast and gloomy. Now they see that tremendous day of which they were warned in vain and shudder at those terrors of which they have once made light. They now experientially know the grand business of the day and the dreadful purpose for which they are roused from their slumbers in the grave. To be tried, to be convicted, to be condemned, and to be dragged away to execution. Conscience has been anticipating a trial, and no sooner is the soul united to the body than immediately conscience ascends its throne in the soul. It begins to accuse, to convict, to pass sentence, to upbraid, and to torment. The sinner is condemned, condemned at his own tribunal before he arrives at the bar of his omnipotent judge. The first act of consciousness in this new state of existence is a conviction that he is condemned, an irrevocably condemned creature. He enters God's court, knowing beforehand how it will go with him. When he finds himself ordered to the left hand of his judge, when he hears the dreadful sentence thundered out against him, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It was just what he expected. While on earth, he could flatter himself with vain hopes and shut his eyes against the light of conviction. But then he will not be able to hope better. Then he must know the worst of his case. The formality of the judicial trial is necessary for his conviction before the world, but not for his own conscience, which has already determined his condition. 
however, to convince others of the justice of his doom. He is dragged and guarded from his grave to the judgment seat by fierce, unrelenting devils. Before were his tempters, but now his tormentors. With what horror does he view the burning throne and the frowning face of his judge, that Jesus whom he once disregarded? How he wishes for rocks and mountains to cover and conceal him from his angry eye. But all in vain, appear he must. He is ordered to Christ's left hand among the other trembling criminals. Now the trial comes. All his evil deeds and all his omissions of duty are now produced against him. All the mercies he abused. All the chastisements he despised. All the means of grace he neglected or misimproved. Every sinful and even every idle word. More, his most secret thoughts and dispositions are all exposed and brought into judgment against him. When the judge interrogates him, is it not so, sinner? Are not these charges true? His conscience obliges him to confess and cry out, Guilty, guilty. Now the trembling criminal, being plainly convicted and left without any plea nor any excuse. The supreme judge in stern majesty and inexorable justice thunders out the dreadful sentence, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Oh, tremendous doom! Every word is big with terror and shoots a thunderbolt through the heart. Depart! Away from my presence! I cannot bear so loathsome a sight as you. I once called you to come to me that you might have life, but you would not regard the call. Now you shall never more hear that inviting voice. Depart from me. From me, the only fountain of happiness, the only proper good for an immortal soul. But Lord, we may suppose a criminal to say, if I must depart, bless me before I go. No, says the angry judge. Depart, you who are accursed. Depart with my eternal and heavy curse upon you. A curse dreadfully powerful which blasts whatever it falls upon like flashes of consuming irresistible lightning. But if I must go away under your curse, a criminal may be supposed to say, then let that be all my punishment. Let me depart to some agreeable or at least tolerable remote place where I may meet with something to mitigate the curse. No, you must depart into fire. There you must forever burn in excruciating tortures. But Lord, if I must make my bed in fire, oh, let it be a transient blaze that will soon burn itself out and put an end to my torment. No, depart into everlasting fire. There burn without being consumed and be tormented without end. But Lord, grant me, cries the poor wretch, at least a mitigation of friendly and sympathizing company. Or if this cannot be granted, grant me this small, this almost no request to be doomed to some solitary corner in hell, where I shall be punished only by my own conscience in your immediate hand. But oh, deliver me from these evil tormenting devils. Banish me into some hidden corner in the infernal pit, far from malicious fins. No, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You must be one of their wretched crew forever. 
You joined with them in sinning and now must share in their punishment. You gladly submitted to them as your tempters and now you must submit to them as your tormentors. The sentence being pronounced and read, it is immediately executed. And they will go away into eternal punishment. Matthew 25, 46. Devils drag them to the pit and throw them down headlong. They must go away into the bottomless pit. There they are confined in chains of darkness and cast into the burning lake of fire and brimstone forever and ever. In a dreadful word forever lies the epitome of torment. This is a hell of hell. If they might be but released from suffering, though it were by annihilation, after they have wept away ten thousand millions of ages in extremity of pain, it would be some mitigation, some encouragement. But alas, when as many millions of ages are passed as the stars of heaven or the sands on the seashore or the atoms of dust in this huge earthly globe, their punishment is as far from an end as when the sentence was first pronounced upon them forever. There is no exhausting of that word. When it is affixed to the highest degree of misery, the terror of the sound is utterly insupportable. See, sirs, what depends upon time, that span of time we may enjoy in this fleeting life. Eternity, solemn, all-important eternity, depends upon it. All this while conscience tears the sinner's heart with the most tormenting reflections. Oh, what a fair opportunity I once had for salvation. Had I improved it? I was warned of the consequences of a life of sin and carelessness. I was told of the necessity of faith, repentance, and universal holiness of heart and life. I enjoyed a sufficient space for repentance and all the necessary means of salvation. But fool that I was, I neglected it all. I abused it all. I refused to part with my sins. I refused to engage seriously in religion and to seek God in earnest. And now I am lost forever without hope. Oh, for one of those months, one of those weeks, or even so much as one of those days or hours I once trifle away. With what earnestness, with what solicitude would I improve it? But all my opportunities are past, beyond recovery, and not a moment shall be given me for this purpose any more. What a fool I was to sell my soul for such trifles. To think so lightly of heaven and fall into hell through mere neglect and carelessness, you impenitent, unthinking sinners. Though you may now be able to silence or drown the clamors of your consciences, yet the time, or rather the dread eternity, is coming when they will speak in spite of you, when they will strike home to your soul and be felled by the most hardened and remorseless heart. Therefore, regard these warnings now while they may be the means of your recovery. You are vitally concerned in a solemn transaction of that day I have been describing. You shall either be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, or while moldering in the grave you shall hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth either to the resurrection of life or to the resurrection of damnation, and which shall be your eternal destiny. Have you any evidence to hope that you shall not be of that wretched numerous multitude who shall rise to damnation? If there is any inquiry within the compass of human knowledge that demands your solicitous thoughts, 
Certainly it is this. I should think you cannot enjoy one moment's ease or security while this is undetermined. This fleeting life is all the time you have for preparation. And can you trifle it away? Your all, your eternal all, is set upon your short life. You have but one opportunity, and if that fails, through your sloth and mismanagement, you are irrecoverably undone forever. Therefore, by the solemn authority of the great God, by the tears of death and the great rising day, by the joys of heaven and the torments of hell, and by the value of your immortal souls, I entreat, I charge, I adjure you to awake out of your security and improve the precious moments of life. The world is dying all around you, and can you rest easy in such a world while unprepared for eternity? Awake to righteousness now at the gentle call of the gospel, before the last trumpet gives you an alarm of another kind. He has appointed a day, in which he will judge the world in righteousness, Acts 17, verse 31. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Tom M. Sullivan. Tom has been a narrator on Revived Thoughts in the past, and he has lots of sermons uh, from church history as well. You can find them on the Sermon Audio website and search for Tom M. Sullivan uh, as the narrator there. He's got lots of great sermons. Go check them out. If you enjoyed this episode, go check out some previous episodes of Revive Thoughts. We always have new listeners coming on, and people love to subscribe to a show and just listen to the latest episodes, but we have been doing this for almost three years now. Uh, we have a former episode on Samuel Davies, which is really good, but we also have hundreds, I mean, well, not hundreds, but well over a hundred sermons you can go check out. Go listen to some of those ones. If you like this time of the Great Awakening, I encourage you to go check out Jonathan Edwards, uh, Samuel Rutherford, who was a pre-revolutionary a preacher, uh, very early episode we did and george whitfield john wesley we have all of them go listen to some of those gentlemen also if you're looking for more content go make sure you are subscribed to all the shows at revive studios make sure you're subscribed subscribe to our newest show forgotten hollywood with chris wineland who just put out his third episode this week it's very good make sure you go listen to it the power of a joke make sure you're subscribed to martyrs and missionaries you're listening to all the episodes that elise uh, has put out she is working on her next one right now and make sure you're subscribed to Revive Divas, putting out every single day great devotional content, two to three minutes long, so that you always have something you can be listening to and being edified from us here at Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.